is the second in this series that I'm doing on the subject of work. And when I spoke last, three weeks ago, we looked at meaning in work and finding our meaning or bringing meaning to your workplace. And today we're going to be uh, looking at understanding and handling some of the tough sides of being at work. And so this morning we're going to begin with an interview. And so would you please welcome Jane Hayden. So, Jane, you're an emergency medical dispatcher for the ambulance service, an EMD. Just tell us what your work involves. Okay, so um, I work for East Midlands Ambulance Service as an EMD team leader um, in the operations centre. This is where 999 calls are received and ambulances are dispatched. Um, EMD stands for Emergency Medical Dispatcher. They're licensed by an academy in America to provide non-visual first aid um, to 999 callers. EMAS receives about 1,800 to 2,599 calls every day um, from across Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire, Leicestershire, Northamptonshire, Lincolnshire and Rutland. EMDs are trained to um, calm the caller down, find out what's happening and then use the caller to control the situation, providing first aid over the phone until the crew can get on scene. This involves giving the caller instructions to deal with a whole range of situations, ranging from um, delivering babies to performing CPR and anything you can imagine people call 999 for, including a lot of things you'd never imagine. Um, I directly line manage a team of 17. How, um, however, EMDs work different rotors, so um, I support all EMDs, including those on other teams that are on duty when I'm on shift. Well, really, really valuable role, evidently. Uh, I'm going to be talking today about the harshness of the working environment, difficulties, pressures in the workplace. I imagine you face some of those. Yeah, um, everyone's heard of the ongoing demands and ongoing pressures on the NHS at the moment. Um, it's resulting in an increased and sometimes unrealistic expectation on my role from senior management. Um, I'm responsible for monitoring the incoming calls to make sure EMDs are available to answer them, particularly at busy times, which is most of the time. Um, I liaise with other roles in the EOC, providing updates to and from EMDs um, regarding complex uh, incidents. As a line manager, I'm expected to train and manage my team effectively in line with policies and procedures in areas such as attendance, capability, disciplinary, particularly performance. I'm also expected to provide long and short staff welfare support to both my team um, and other EMDs that are on duty with me. EMAS has a high turnover of staff. Um, I support new EMDs as they learn while taking live 999 calls, um, as well as helping experienced EMDs understand and implement the constant changes in policies and procedures. You could say um, multitasking is a key skill used during every shift. Uh, for example, on my last shift, I had to deal with some equipment failure while a call was being taken. At the same time, an EMD became distressed about a call that they'd just received. At the same time, a new EMD urgently needed my guidance on how to handle the call. It goes without saying that EMD, uh, sorry, 999 calls in themselves are stressful calls. EMDs are people too. They regularly hear some very horrific things, most of which never reach the public domain. Um, they also experience their own everyday stress like we all do. Um, and are sometimes dealing with their own very difficult per, uh, personal situations. And I regularly have the opportunity and the privilege of being able to support them both in work and outside of work. 
So pretty pressurized environment and your mistakes count hugely. So there's a pressure and stress on you there. Mm -hmm. How do you get through that? How do you cope with all that? Well, when it comes to work, I have boundaries and I aim to keep a healthy work-life balance. Uh, many of you that know our family are aware that we've dealt with and are dealing with some very extreme stressful situations. So those boundaries work both ways. When driving to work, I try to listen to worship um, and I thank God for coming into work with me. Over time, I've learned how to leave work-related stress at work and non-work-related stress outside work. It's strange how I can finish a shift and literally everything I've just dealt with leaves my mind as I walk through the door. However, as I walk towards my car, I then remember everything I left outside 12 hours earlier. <laughs> when on duty, um, I've learned to respond to situations in a professional way. So this means removing all your emotion, calm, uh, calmly assessing the facts to get a clear view of a situation, and then decide decisions can be made quickly and effectively. Sometimes I find myself using this approach outside work, but it's vital to acknowledge and address that emotion at a later date for my own um, emotional well-being. It's really important to have downtime. Um, I love being creative, especially arts and crafts, dancing, festivals, going for walks, chatting over coffee, sometimes just sitting quietly. Um, over 32 years ago, I married my best friend Rick, and he knew what he was, God knew what he was doing when he put us together because we make a great team. Rick's learned over the years how to support me, when to make me laugh, when to listen, and definitely when to leave me well alone. <laughs> I try to keep life in perspective. My life is built on my faith, and I constantly try to remind myself that this means that I'm not alone. However stressful life gets, whether in or out of work, God's in it with me. When things get too much, I try to find a quiet space, even if this means taking a toilet break and take some deep breaths, remind myself that life's temporary, I'm on a journey to heaven and there's no stress there. God's with me and he has a plan, so I trust him to get me through every situation, however extreme or random, and even provide me the opportunity to be a light in some very dark places. I have found that chatting constantly with God gives me the release and support that I need to get through anything. Wonderful, thank you so much, Jane. As fulfilling as work can be, it can, as we all know, be difficult. And I continually hear of another report about increasing pressure at work, working, you know, pressure to work longer, to work harder. Like one published this month that said in a survey of a thousand organizations, it revealed over 80% of them observing staff coming to work while they were ill, and two thirds of employees working while they're on holiday. Mark Green, who runs the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, wrote this. The way we work today is corroding our culture and killing our relationships. This is bad. But if you're in work, it is probably not news. Disturbingly, many people feel forced to work late, not so that they can acquire a five-bedroom house in Mayfair and the time it takes a Maserati to go from naught to 60. No, they feel forced to work late just to stay employed. I wonder if you can relate to that. It may not be about the number of working hours you do, but fear of redundancy. There may be stress, purposelessness. Many of you will be facing significant ethical challenges. We'll talk more about that later in the series. You may have a difficult boss. You may have difficult colleagues. You may suffer discrimination in the workplace. Perhaps your biggest work-related stress is 
that you're not in paid work at the moment. You want to be. Whatever your circumstances, I think we could probably all agree that work can be a source of stress at one time or another. And is there anybody who's actually been at work for more than a couple of weeks who doesn't have some war story to tell? I've been working now for about 45 years in all sorts of different jobs. I started my own business when I was 13. Well, basically me, a bucket, a sponge, and some shampoo, washing cars around the neighborhood. And then for the past 36 years, I've been in full-time work. And some of my jobs have been more enjoyable than others. So let me just tell you about my very first job. Coming out of uh, graduating from in Sheffield where I was studying jewelry, I, two of us out of the 23 on the course managed to go straight into a job. So I was really, really grateful to have that work. And um, I needed to speed up if I was going to be a working jeweler because students get to spend like loads of time doing stuff. We work pretty hard, but nevertheless, it's a more relaxed environment, shall we say, than a jewelry factory. So I went to my interview and um, my boss said, look, here's something typical that you might do. What this is, is a ring with a sprue. So a sprue is where well, you get loads of these on a tree and uh, the gold rushes in there and then you have to trim the sprue off and shape it up ready for polishing. So he said, take this. How long would it take you, do you think? You've got to get a piercing saw and saw that sprue off. Then you take a large file and rip off the metal around to make it nearly the shape you need. Then you take a smaller file and you file it even more. Very, very accurate. This is going to be sold in Mapping and Web, so you've got to get it really nicely right. Then you use a sanding board and get it really nice. Trim off. You've got little gold air bubbles on it. You've got little marks, the seams where the wax wasn't perfect. You've got to shape it all up. Then you take a dental drill with a sanding thing on the end. And then you all this work. And you get it all ready. So that can then go back in the packet, be given to a polisher who just with a polishing motor and a mop will make it shiny. So he said, how long do you reckon? So I thought, well, I better try and impress him because, you know, uh, like an hour. He said, that is two minutes, two minutes. And so I would be given the exact amount of work that the boss felt I should be doing in a working day, which was often 6.30 in the morning to 6.30 in the evening. So 12 hours, half hour lunch break, three 10 minute tea breaks, regimented. So 11 working hours divided by two minutes. You all know that would be 330 such pieces of jewelry, many of them different to each other. And so as I imagine, you can imagine, it was highly time pressured. So if you had to blow your nose, you are half a ring behind. If you had to visit the toilet, you might be you know, even more behind. And then at the end of the day, you went up with all these packets of hundreds of pieces that you worked on and give them to the boss, who was one of the most imposing, intimidating human beings I'd ever met, and be told off, reprimanded every day for not achieving. Because of course, you could, you'd never manage to do the 330 pieces. It wasn't just the pace of work, but it wasn't exactly the supportive and safe environment my, one might hope for, health and safety. No one had ever heard of that then. And even when I complained about some little issue, uh, it was like, buy your own equipment. And we were, yeah, you, the working environment today is much safer and the equipment would be provided. But the last straw, the reason I eventually left that company, was when the lady who made the tea and packed the work up in tissue paper and sent it out, she requested two days off work because her mother had died and she needed to travel to go to the funeral. Two days off work, and my boss said, nope, you're indispensable. And then about three weeks later, he made her redundant. 
Now, some of your situations are far worse than that, and some of you are going back to work tomorrow, or if you've got bank holiday Monday off, you're going back on Tuesday. And for you, work just feels like a constant uphill struggle, and you feel about a bit like this guy in the picture. Well, let's just take a look at a passage of Scripture which talks about this, gives us some insights into how to persevere when work beats us down. So this is taken from 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The author of this letter is Peter, and he recognizes that people will sometimes receive a beating in their jobs, not necessarily a physical beating, but it could include you know, unreasonable demands, deadlines that are just simply impossible to meet. It could mean low pay, all sorts of difficult working environment situations that work can just beat us down. If, as we learned last time I spoke, work can be meaningful, why is it that so many of us have so many war stories from the workplace? Let me just ask you to take a moment, just in your mind's eye, picture paradise. What for you would be paradise? For me, it would be lying on a beach on a South Sea island like Tahiti with Debbie and a few close friends, lying there a comfortable sun lounger sipping a cocktail, or enjoying the crystal clear warm water, maybe scuba diving among exotic fish, or surfing the waves. I wonder what picture in your mind you're thinking of what would be really paradise? I suspect that most of you did not include working (laughs) in your idea of paradise. But it may surprise you to discover that from God's perspective, work is part of paradise. The book of Genesis describes uh, God's idea of paradise. And in chapter 2, we read this, Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work. To work it and to take care of it. The picture Genesis paints here is that God's ideal involves work. It's a gift for us. And as we look back to God's original intention for us, we see that we see work and when we look forward to our future experience of heaven, eternity, there are a number of passages in the Bible which talk about the fruitful work that we will be doing in the life to come. Work is designed by God to be one of the most fulfilling things that we ever get to do. U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt said this, No man needs sympathy because he has to work. Far and away, the best prize that life offers is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. Some of you will know all too well that one of the hardest things that one ever has to endure is not hard work, but being unable to work at all, whether paid or unpaid, but not having any opportunity to work. It dehumanizes dehumanizes us to have no work to do because work is a gift. It's part of the way we are designed to function. So why doesn't it feel like a gift? The word that Peter uses is 
unjust. He uses it twice there, unjustly and unjust. The New International Version translates it as harsh. Work can be harsh. Peter says in verse 18, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. And that word translated unjust or harsh means distorted, out of line with its original design. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God, it had the effect of shifting work from being as God designed it under his leadership to allowing the effect of our enemy, Satan's destructive influence. As we, humanity, wrenched it from God's blessing and plan, work became misaligned with God's intention and distorted. And the Bible uses the word cursed. How is it distorted? Well, firstly, mankind's rebellion marred the working environment. So Genesis 3.18 tells us this, cursed is the ground. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you. The ground is a picture of our work environment. We will experience there thorns and thistles, which the Bible uses to symbolize opposition. So our work environment will produce opposition for us from our employers, from colleagues, from clients, from suppliers, from the materials that go wrong, whatever it happens to be. We cannot expect our working environment to be entirely cooperative. Secondly, mankind's rebellion marred work itself. So Genesis 3 continues there in verse 19. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. It is going to be sometimes tough. Even those of us who love our jobs, we've experienced stressful times. And so when you do a job, you know, it's just never done. I don't know whether you can relate to this guy. No matter how many emails you answer, there will be dozens more waiting for you. No matter how many fires you put out, there's another problem just around the corner. No matter how good a worker you are, things go wrong. And this unfairness is part of the curse on work. And then finally, mankind's rebellion marred workers. Sin, our wrongdoings, entered the story, and every one of us is far from perfect. We, we and every one of our colleagues bring sin into the working environment. Don't of you remember the Peanuts cartoons with Snoopy? Uh, one of his mates was called Pigpen. And as he walked along, he had this cloud of dust coming off him. You know, our sin is just like Pigpen's dust. In our, in our wake, there is a trail of it. We, we bring our problems to work, our issues to work, our colleagues bring theirs. And so it, work can be a very dusty environment full of imperfect people. We and others might be oversensitive. We might have a bad attitude to authority. We or others might procrastinate or gossip or be too demanding ourselves of others. We might be lazy. We might be greedy. We might be jealous. We might be negatively competitive. And so the picture of work in the Bible is that it, it was part of God's original plan for us, a way to use our gifts, to serve him, to serve each other, to serve the planet. But it's become distorted by man's choice, mankind's choice to disobey God's ways and the work environment and work itself have become marred 
and that adds harshness to the job. Even those of us who love our jobs may be feeling a bit depressed here. Don't worry, it does get better. Because if work is part of God's plan, he can help us to experience something of his original intention. So let's try and answer the question, how can we bear up under the strain of the harshness of work? The first thing is to discover the cause of our beating, what is beating us down. If we look at verse 20, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. What is causing this beating? We need some discernment as to why it's happening, what's actually going on. Perhaps it's one of the things we just looked at, something due to the working environment, or it's something about the nature of our work, or is it someone else's fault? Or is it indeed our fault? It can be difficult to admit, but it could well be that we are the problem or part of the problem that make work, makes work so hard. It may be a problem with authority or timekeeping. We may have an aversion to hard work or we keep missing deadlines. You know, whatever it is, it's no crime to be broken. And in one way or another, we all have areas of weakness. We all have blind spots. We all have sin. But the first thing really to do is take responsibility for that which we're responsible for, to uh, understand what is causing this, and then ask the Lord to work on these things. We can only really change ourselves. We're not unlikely to change our boss or our colleagues, but we can grow in our ability to be a really fine worker. The second way to get up when work beats you down is to compartmentalize our problems. I'm not talking about putting Jesus in a compartment. He needs access, of course, to all parts of our lives. But I'm sure that many of us have experienced times when pressure and strains at work has impacted the rest of our lives. When you go camping in one of those little ridge tents, you have four major pegs that you have to get down. And if one of them comes loose, the peg comes out and it's just flapping that corner of the tent, it doesn't have to mean that the whole tent is blown over. Although it can sometimes feel easier said than done, finding ways that our work problems stay at work can significantly reduce the impact that it has on our whole life. And that means paying extra attention to make sure other pegs are in place. Prioritizing our devotional life, our relationships, those things that replenish us. I didn't know what Jane was going to say this morning, but she perfectly illustrates the point. She says when she walks out the door, she leaves work at work. There are other challenges and other things going on, but there are relationships, there are replenishing activities, as she said, she listed a number of them. And that's so important to just compartmentalize. That's work. That's where the problems are. I'm not going to let it just overwhelm the rest of my life. A number of you will be in a position where your work life is horrible. And you feel that, you know, that peg has come loose. And really my encouragement to you this morning is to pay attention to the others, the other areas of your life. And just keep that part compartmentalized off. Over time, you may get the peg bang back in. You might change job or your job may itself change. Thirdly, don't be a thermometer. A thermometer simply reflects the environment it's in. So if it's hot, as we know, the thermometer goes up. If it's cold, the thermometer comes down. And that can really be the same with us. If uh, someone is angry with us, we can be angry back. If they're gossiping, we gossip. If they're argumentative, we argue. 
Well, let's just look at Jesus as our example here in verse 21. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus didn't live reacting to the things that happened around him. He lived just as a completely centered person, the Holy Spirit filling him, and he lived out of that place as we can. One of the best ways to deal with injustice and harshness at work is to choose to respond with the opposite spirit what is not natural to us, to step into the opposite. So to conduct ourselves with gentleness, with what the Bible calls meekness. I want to show you a little piece of film which recounts a story which really puts what we face at work into perspective. And uh, just, I should warn you, this film contains some language that some would find offensive. Uh, It's of its time, and we certainly wouldn't want to endorse it, but we've left it in to show the full power of this story. The world was aflame with racial hate and street violence. They were trying to desegregate two elementary schools and this little girl was ordered by a federal judge to go into one of them. And she was there all by herself. The whole white population had boycotted the school no other children with her. And I happened to see this little child going into a school in New Orleans at the age of six to the first grade. I thought to myself, I would like to know that child. I'd like to know what's happening to her. One day, having now spent months getting to know Ruby and being rather puzzled at how normal and stoic and strong she was, going through this kind of living hell, 200 people waiting at 8.30 in the morning to tell her they were going to kill her. 200 people in the afternoon telling her they were going to kill her. 25 federal marshals taking her into that building. What would you expect? You'd expect that a child going through that would pretty soon start developing symptoms and be in trouble. I waited and waited and there weren't any symptoms and she kept going and learning and being the ruby that she was, a normal six-year-old black child, very poor background, parents didn't even know how to read and write. Humble people. One day her school teacher said to me that she'd been looking out of the window and she saw Ruby yet again coming to school. This time she watched carefully and she noticed that as Ruby was walking past this mob of heckling men and women, she stopped and the teacher saw her lips moving. I said, Ruby, your teacher told me today that uh, she said, you're talking to those people on the street. She said to me, doctor, I told her that I wasn't talking to the people. I said, well, who were you talking to, Ruby? She said, I told her I was talking to God. Could you tell us, uh, tell our audience uh, why you took him out? Because I didn't want to go to school with the nigga. Why were you praying to God? She said, I was praying for the people in the street. I said, why were you doing that, Ruby? And she said, uh, well, because 
I wanted to pray for them. I said, you didn't want to pray for them? Yes, she said. I said, Ruby, why would you want to pray for those people? And then she looked at me and her eyes widened and she said, well, don't you think they need praying for? That stopped me cold. Where did she get that idea, Ruby? She said, well, my mommy and daddy have told me that and the minister told me that in church. She said, I pray for them every morning and I pray for them every afternoon when I go home. I pray for the mothers to keep their kids out of school altogether. We're, no, we're white people. We don't want them to go to school with niggas. I have five and they ain't going to school with no niggas. And I said, Ruby, those people are so mean to you and they're so nasty to you. You must have some other feelings toward them besides wanting to pray for them. She said, I just keep praying for them and I just hope that God will be good to them. I said, what do you say in the prayer, Ruby? I always say the same thing. What's that, Ruby? Well, I always say, please, dear God, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Now, I'd heard that someplace before. Is there anyone at your job who needs you to pray for them? Is there any difficult person who needs you to come in the opposite spirit? Someone you would like to retaliate against who needs you to act peacefully, to act gently? Someone who is arrogant, who needs you to be humble? Don't be a thermometer. And uh, fourthly, avoid self-pity, which Ruby so magnificently did there. Self-pity is different to acknowledging and dealing with difficult and challenging situations. You know, we, we do sometimes need to take action not to not allow ourselves to go on being taken advantage of. But self-pity itself is actually a sin. And it can lead us to accusations against God. We can find ourselves praying, how can you let this happen to me, God? You know, change it. It's kind of your fault. We're blaming God for whatever's going on, and it can poison us, poison our attitudes. The world, is a bottom line, is unfair. In this world, you're going to have trouble. It is unfair. It is distorted. And being a Christian doesn't exempt us from the curse on work. Christians suffer as much as non-Christians do. Jesus doesn't promise that he will protect us from ever finding ourselves in difficult situations. He promises that we will. What he does promise us is that when we've been wounded by a work situation, we can run to him for comfort, and he is the father of compassion, the God of all comfort. He's there for us. And I'd like to encourage anyone this morning who's facing difficulties at work not to fall into self-pity, but to proactively approach God with your difficulties. And you may find he gives you not only the strength to get up when work is beating you down, he may give you a solution to the problem, he may give you a different perspective on it. Just last week, a member of this church contacted me after a prolonged and very difficult work situation, which meant she was unable to work for quite some time. 
And this just demonstrates perspective. She wrote this. As I look back on the whole experience, I know God was with me every step of the way. Actually, I needed the break. This has been so beneficial in so many ways. In the long term, I'm able to achieve a little more work-life balance. So perspective. And the best way to get up when work beats you down is to present our wounds to Jesus. In verse 24, by his wounds you have been healed. Now some of you today really relate to this talk uh, and even, yeah, you just feel, oh my goodness, this is so me. I feel totally beaten down at work uh, and my situation is really hard. I would encourage you, open up to the Lord. He is your healer. Don't make him your enemy. Don't blame him for your situation, but press in and allow him to comfort you. There may be an opportunity in a moment for you to receive prayer from one of your brothers and sisters who might just bring a sense of that comfort. So work is a gift of God. It was part of God's perfect creation before the fall. It will be restored again after the Lord's return. For now, it is still a gift. It can be fulfilling. And there are times which most of us will have known of feeling great satisfaction of a job well done. But it is under a curse because of man's choice, mankind's choice not to obey God. And the effects of the fall of mankind, as we've seen, affected the working environment, the work itself, and workers. Remember that picture of pig pen, which describes you and me and the rest of us who go to work. So how can we get up? What can we do when work is beating us down? Well, discover the cause of our beating. Is there anything I am contributing to which I need to address? Compartmentalize our problems as Jane so well illustrated as we began. Don't be a thermometer, up and down, but be centered in who you are with God and uh, as you step through those things. Refuse to get into self-pity. And when work, work beats us down, we can present our wounds to Jesus. Shall we stand?